And remember, my friend, he who controls the spice controls the universe. Next thing they'll be breeding us like cattle. It's a man It can only be attributable to human error. Written with the finger of God. Welcome to Film Talk for the Filmically Challenged. I'm Ben Hodson. I'm Bryant Hodson. And I'm Brad Hodson. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about Dune and all things Dune. Now, I'm surprised at how many of my friends have heard of Dune, but have never seen the movie, never read the book or anything like that. And it's one of these movies that's sort of loathed and, and uh, <laughs> loved, depending on you know which type of movie fan you are. So oh, yeah. I guess I, the first place I'd start, I mean, the way I got introduced into Dune was I read the book first. Um, and that book was a life-changing event for me in terms of my literary knowledge. It blew me away. It's the, it's the closest thing to um, a world like Lord of the Rings that I've ever seen before. Um, and I immediately reading it thought this could never really be a movie or it would have to be like a six-part movie or something. <laughs> so there's maybe the first inherent problem with trying to film Dune is it's maybe unfilmable. Right, and that's the thing. It's not that it's like Lord of the Rings, right, but that the scope of the story yeah, and the depth, the depth right, the is... The worlds, the characters, the people, everything is so well thought out and so detailed. Yeah. They even, you know, come up with their own language and culture for these people, so it's just, yeah. So and several cultures as well, so. Yeah. So for those of you that maybe don't know anything about Dune, it's a science fiction story, and it's set 20-something thousand years into the future. So we're talking about orders of magnitude. You know, I laugh when I see uh, Terminator. It's 1997, and the machines have taken over the world. We sadly <laughs> failed as a society technologically to get there. But 20,000 years, almost anything can happen, it seems like. So it's a story of of this young boy who uh, finds out he has special powers and basically learns to control them and goes through all these things. It's a typical hero's journey type story, but it was groundbreaking at the time and much more complicated than most sci-fi out there. It, and the interesting thing is it didn't focus on technology. That's the cool thing about doing it. It's sci-fi, but it's really more about characters and situations than it is about technological advances. Right. The technology is kind of a, just a backdrop to the the story that Frank Herbert wanted to tell. So I guess, first of all, let's talk a little bit um, about the book. Um, what were your uh, guys' initial impressions when you read the book? Uh, one thing that always uh, I always come back to when thinking about Dune myself is the level of detail that Frank Herbert would used in his writing to try to explain the scenery and the feel and the mood of things um, by, uh, you know, either um, metaphor or symbolism or things like that. So, I mean, I, I still remember one of the parts where it's talking about um, just the shadows, of, or not the shadows, the, the light coming in from the windows on, on a dark floor and how they looked like daggers kind of shooting in. Just that kind of a way that he would uh, describe the 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 world that you were reading about was very enveloping, and it would just kind of bring you in, and you would 
feel every single detail and know that he had thought about all of these things. He thought about every single, um, you know, culture and and their, um, you know, their foods that they would eat and how they would subsist and and all these different details. So it it was, uh, you know, I guess Lord of the Rings is a great example in that you feel like you know these cultures as if it was a history lesson. Yeah. For for me, uh, what was interesting was I actually saw the movie before I read the book. And oh, wow. yeah, so I remember watching the movie and the uh, for the first time, and you hear the people's thoughts. You know, they have these little internal monologue things all the time in the movie, which is usual unusual. The, there are not a lot of movies that do that, where they have the characters explain what they're thinking uh, during conversations and while they're doing things. But when you read the book, you you see all that that he's written out what these characters are thinking all the time and I feel like that was smart of David Lynch to include that that aspect of the book um, in the movie. It's interesting you mentioned that because it's one of the top criticisms that the film gets <laughs> is yeah. uh, every time the characters are walking around they're whispering to themselves and you're hearing what they think in their head you know. Which I thought was so unique and interesting. I, I love it. <laughs> I, I thought it was awesome. I don't know how else you do that book without giving us an idea of what they're thinking because otherwise the story would make no sense. It's actually one of the top criticisms of the movie besides the thinking parts was that it's um, unless you read Dune, the movie is tough to grapple with. I mean, it yeah. probably without right. the book, it's, it's akin to watching 2001 Space Odyssey the very first time and trying to understand what's going on. You and, know? and that's why David Lynch wanted it to be like a six-hour movie. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever, you know? And every attempt before that, too. Uh, there were other scripts that uh, they had drafted out that were three parts that were ten-hour-long, uh, you know, episodes. I think it was um, Khodorowsky that wanted to make it ten, uh, a ten-part series or something like that. Um, it just... It's so expansive uh, that it, it's hard to all um, compress into one yeah. cohesive story. But and so that yeah, yeah I, exposition is a huge yeah. thing in in Dune because you have to um, let people know what's going on or how the world works. Well, yeah. exposition's a thing in the book. Uh, if you guys remember Princess uh, Aurelian, I really how do you say her name? I can't remember. I think Irulan is how I would Irulan? always say. It. Yeah. Yeah. She is in the book all the time, just like aside talking to the reader, telling us things about the world so we can understand it. But I want to, for the listeners at home, I don't want to make you think, oh crap, I need to read the book first. Because actually, um, having s seen it from both sides here on this podcast, I would probably say that you should go into the movie not knowing anything. And I think it will be a more exciting experience for you. You may not understand everything, but you will be captivated by the film because it's like nothing else you've ever seen. So those two <laughs> criticisms that we, we just said a lot of people have, the talking in their heads, is actually really cool if you look at it as a groundbreaking cinematic trick. And secondly, the criticism of people saying that, oh, you, you can't even understand this movie without... I disagree. You'll still know the overall plot yeah. line. You'll still know what's going on. You'll still know the, but you might not get all the nooks and crannies because there's tons of stuff being thrown at you. I think that's kind of fun. So I recommend yeah. it that way. Yeah, and I watched this with a few coworkers just a couple weeks ago. They had never heard of Dune before, 
we watched it together, and they were able to follow the story. They definitely had questions that they were asking me. I didn't answer them, though. I said, let's just keep watching and see if you can, you know, find yeah. that answer. And usually it's answered later on. Yeah. Uh, but they do leave a lot of questions as you're watching, you know. What is that? We you know, what was he talking about there? And then it, later on it's revealed. Um, but... It's funny yeah. that you say they haven't even heard of Dune, because I don't know if you guys know, but Dune is actually still the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. Uh, we're, we're yes. like 14 million copies or something, or 12 million copies. I can't remember the exact number, but it's crazy high. And In fact, at one point in the 70s, the only book that had been published more than Dune was the Bible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And with so many religious references in Dune, you might consider them on the same level. <laughs> well, actually, it's interesting you mention that because um, there's the whole Jung and, and uh, uh, what is it, uh, Zen Buddhism thing going on in there. And, yep. and there's a whole, like, cult around. I don't know if you guys know that, but there was a cult that started up in the 80s. And Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, had to distance himself from the cult because they wanted to. <laughs> right. Was it a Charles Manson uh, No, they were just going yeah. in. they did like the the prayers in the book and and they lived uh, according to the um, shunning of fear methodology and all this sort of thing, you know. That's amazing. That really is. <laughs> but that's a tribute to how yeah. deep he thought through this world that it was so real for people they made it real in their own lives. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's True, though. It's true. <laughs> so uh, there's a couple different versions. Oh, actually, one other thing I should mention. I forgot. I just learned this the other day. But um, Frank Herbert actually sent the Dune manuscript around to 20 different publishers, all the major publishing companies at the time. I think this was, what, 63 or so, 1963? I don't know exactly. Uh, anyways. Um, yeah, something like that. He got rejected on every single one. It's kind of like Harry Potter, you know? She sends it around to 200 people. Everybody thinks it's crap. And then, of course, it goes on to be the biggest seller of the last 20 years. Well, doing the same thing. And guess who? Do you know who published it originally? This is hilarious to me. Chilt Books. Yeah. Can I ring a bell to you guys? No, I don't know. I that. didn't recognize them until I looked it up. And okay. Have you ever it. went through an auto shop class or you've ever been in a back room of an auto shop You've seen Chilton books. All the auto shop manuals that show you how to fix different things with all the mechanical drawings, those are Chilton. That's what they did is mechanical manuals. And they <laughs> saw uh, something in Dune, and so they published it. It ended up being huge for the company, made them millions. But uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's catching a break right there. <laughs> So yeah. let's talk. Let's talk about the movie. There's actually two different versions. Uh, well, three technically. There's there's a um, theatrical cut of Dune from that. And when we say the movie, we're talking about the 1984 version directed by David Lynch. Okay. Um, there's the theatrical cut, which David Lynch distanced himself from. In fact, when you watch the movie, you'll notice that the director is put in as Alan Smithy, which is because Lynch disown the film because it wasn't his vision and the studio meddled all the way along. And then there's a uh, director's cut which is about an hour and a half longer. The, the, the actual theatrical cut is like two and a half hours. So this thing's up to four hours almost on the director's cut. Yeah. And that's still missing a ton of stuff Lynch wanted 
but they never filmed that stuff. Yeah, so. But the theatrical cut is two hours and 17 minutes because that was the maximum the studio would allow so that the theaters, when they showed the film, didn't have to lose a showing. Yeah. That they could fit enough showings in to earn money, right? Yeah. So he knew from the very beginning he wouldn't be able to do his vision from the scripting you know, stage. He knew he wouldn't be able to do his full vision of turning this book into a movie and that he would be cut short, and so he he, <laughs> he kind of gave up on it early on, but it's really amazing, the outcome, though. I mean, <laughs> from what he was able to pack into it, it's it's pretty amazing, so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it, um, I, I don't know if it still rings true, but um, I've consistently heard that David Lynch never actually read Dune, which... <laughs> Read it. He didn't read it until he was hired. Okay. So six so, months before photography started, he read the book and then worked on the script. All right. And he is the writer. He's credited as the writer on the on the final script. He um, worked on several drafts with another writer. I don't remember who that was. And then did the final five drafts himself. Um, so it, it's definitely you know a lot of David Lynch, but he of course complains about you know, the production companies and, and uh, Hollywood in general just not facilitating uh, his vision of, of what Dune could have been. And uh, yeah. I think that's pretty much right considering David Lynch's uh, history. So I worry, <laughs> I worry that the listener at home might hear this and go, well, why would I want to watch this? It's not what the director wanted. It's complete crap. It's, it, here's the thing. Lynch is such a genius that even... Even something that doesn't come out the way he wants is still better than almost anything else out there. You know? <laughs> right. In some way, because he was so pushed by the studio, he went completely crazy on stuff and made wacko things in there that you would have maybe, maybe never seen if he had an easier time. Well, so and even seeing a portion of his full vision is, a, is just brilliant, you know? Yeah. And we've we've seen the extended edition, right, the the longer cut, and there's a lot of great detail in there that helps explain the universe that Dune takes place in, but but the the theatrical cut by itself is enough, you know, I feel like, to to dip your toe into the world and really see amazing things that you've never seen before. Sure. Yeah, now David Lynch was actually chosen... Um, some people might not recognize his name because he's not necessarily a mainstream director. He was chosen because of his work on Elephant Man, yeah, um, which is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, it's a masterpiece, absolutely. But he's done other movies as well that have been kind of outside of the mainstream. Um, Eraserhead, for instance, is certainly not uh, the same spoon that it's going to be feeding everyone else. It's just it's uh, kind of out of this world. Yeah, so, for those uh, those listening at home, uh, tread carefully on a racer head. Unless you're well into film, you may you may never be able to get that movie out of your head afterwards. So <laughs> we love it. <laughs> you can feel elements of what he did on Eraserhead though within Dune to make you feel awkward or uh, just kind of some dread deep within you. Uh, for instance, with the Harkonnen family, which is one of the big factions in in Dune kind of the evil house that is trying to take over this uh, desert planet. And uh, so, you know, there's definitely things that were unique to Lynch that helped contribute to building 
a very interesting and, and kind of uh, timeless world. Well, he's, he's an expressionistic filmmaker, David Lynch. He tries to convey feeling more than tell story. Tell or character you know? story or anything. If you watch some of his other films, like Mulholland Drive, it's all about what kind of feeling can I convey in, you know, in a scene to someone to make them feel a certain way, you know? And I feel I'm like a lot of that sure comes from That people listening, unless they know Lynch, probably don't know anything except for Twin Peaks. That's probably the gateway for most people. So if you see Twin Peaks TV show or heard about it, that's David Lynch, writer and director. Yep. Okay. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, Dune, the movie here. So I, now let's just focus on the theatrical cut because it's actually kind of hard to get all of the director's cut. And there's actually a work print cut. I don't know if you guys know that, which has large swaths of time where people just sketched <laughs> in what would happen, you know, and tried <laughs> to piece it together from Lynch's original script. Uh, I've only seen parts of it. I don't even know how you get a hold of it, but I know it exists somewhere. So Sure. <laughs> I need to see that. <laughs> so I guess uh, maybe let's start with the cast. Let's talk about, because this was an amazing cast for the time, 1984, which I still, you guys hear me say this all the time, the greatest year for film in Hollywood history was 1984. <laughs> no, seriously, it was. <laughs> it's never been more creative, uh, more long-lasting, better talent, you know, than that year ever, so... Absolutely agreed. Yeah, no, and and the cast for Dune was freaking off the charts. And I was actually just watching it this morning and noticing um, some some of the actors are playing on kind of a, a different level, especially um, the uh, actress who played Lady Jessica. So this is the the kid hero's mother. Um, yeah. She's playing it like it's gone with the wind. I mean, it it <laughs> like seriously, she she brings out kind of this old classic style, almost Shakespearean kind of way of of acting that uh, kind of elevates the movie in, in some ways. She's a very interesting character because of it. Uh, uh, Frank Herbert, the the writer uh, of the book, who by the way gave his blessing on the movie and loved the movie when it came out, the theatrical mm -hmm. cut. Um, he is on record as saying Lady Jessica is his most interesting character in that whole series. Yeah, absolutely. And she is. She's very interesting when you analyze her contributions to, to things and how her characters played out. I mean, she becomes the... She has to balance loyalties between the Bene Gesserit and the, the uh, Duke's house, and there's lots of things going on in her mind all the time. She's a super interesting character. Yeah, exactly. And we got Patrick Stewart in there. Yes. Um, that's mm -hmm. the first thing people pointed out when I was watching it with my coworkers. Like, what, Patrick Stewart's in this? You, yeah. You're young pup. You're young <laughs> pup. Yeah. No, he's, yeah, Gurney Halleck. And yeah, he's, and he's funny because this is really before he was a big star in some ways. Uh, he's just like a bit part in that movie, but... Um, Actually, the the uh, director's cut gives him a little more screen time because it's kind of weird in a theatrical cut. He comes at the beginning and then he's like at the very end, sort of standing next to Paul, and that's it. You know. <laughs> well, and he has his little pug puppy. And wait, that's Paul's puppy, isn't it? It is, but uh, he's well, I thought it was. Puppy. 
he holds it when the Harkonnens come in the invasion. He takes care of the puppy. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't think I ever noticed that. That's hilarious. You gotta check it out. <laughs> he says, uh, long live Duke Leto, and they go charging at the Harkonnens, and he's got the puppy in his arm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so let's... I want to just mention a few people that I'm just blown away by. Brad Dorif. Yes. Yes. Who, plays, plays Worm Tongue, right, in yeah, Lord of the Rings? Yeah, it's another guy that... You know, you absolutely, you you at home listening would know if you saw him, but yeah, I probably have no idea who I'm talking about when I say his name. But he was Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. Um, he's also famously in Mississippi Burning, if you ever saw that movie, which won Academy Award. He's amazing in it. Um, uh, Child's Play. He's the voice of Chucky and actually is physically <laughs> manifested. Yes. Yeah. He, He's always terrifying. He's one of my favorite actors. I wish he got more work. And um, he uh, he has, again, just a bit part in Dune, but it's so memorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His mannerisms just kind of bring a whole new level to that character. <laughs> eerie. <laughs> yeah. Eerie. Absolutely. And everyone in the Harkonnen family is eerie, but he is especially just because he's calculating and... Um, it just it feels sleazy with everything that he says. Yeah. Um, I should mention Ma- Max von Sydow. Yes, that well, this is our second podcast now. We've had a record of <laughs> two for two. Max von Sydow mentions in our movies. He's in the Force Awakens for five minutes at the beginning. He's the old man with the beard. <clears throat> <laughs> Yes. This will but, begin to make things right. Isn't that what he said? Yeah. But, <laughs> the, but the interesting thing about Max, uh, his character, which is Dr. Kynes or Keynes, I can't remember the name. Um, uh, he's, like, really important. Uh, he's like a father figure for Paul in a lot of ways. Um, and he's the, he's the connection with the Fremen for Paul. But what's interesting is, I don't know if you guys know, but Max von Sydow has, like, 200 credits on IMDb. I looked him up the other day. Oh, yeah. And he's even been in... Did you guys know that he's in The Seventh Seal, 1957? Yeah, really. Yes, he was the he's one the playing chess. He's the guy playing chess against death. What? Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Which is in the top 100 greatest films of all time. I think it's like number 33 or whatever. It's an incredible film. Hmm. But that's how long he's been doing this sort of thing. Yeah, it's like he's like the Christopher Lee kind of thing. You know, just been in... More movies than you can even remember, and just amazing. A lot of people would know him from Conan, maybe as the king. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I don't. What's some of your other favorite uh, actors in this film? Well, I think we have to mention Sting. Um, yes. <laughs> Did you know this? Uh, oh, okay. I don't know if I want to give spoilers out, but there's a scene where he's like in a speedo. <laughs> with eagle wings sticking out of it. Yeah, but that scene was supposed to be nude. <laughs> the studio freaked out last minute, and, and they had to whip together a costume. <laughs> it was going to be just nude walking out of the steam bath. So for those of you that haven't seen the movie, when you see this part, you're going to laugh out loud now because of this extra information. Yeah, but Sting was totally willing, too. He was on board. He was like, okay, they're doing the nude scene. But the studio well, I, freaked out last minute. 
<laughs> well, Steve comes out of that steam bath, and he looks like, uh, you know, he's been in the back of Cheech and Chong's van for three hours. And, I mean, his hair is spiked straight up. His eyes are glassed over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost wonder, having uh, watched the documentary of um, Korodowski's Dune, if some of that and other ideas came from the ideas that he was coming up with, because he's famous for having strange nude scenes as well, and uh, he was also going to have Mick Jagger as um, that same character, hey. which is yeah, is Fade. So who knows? It may have been kind of a, at least inspired by some of his ideas. It's it's possible. I mean, it's possible, but. Uh... If, I, if it was any other director, I'd probably say it was probable, but with Lynch, dude, he can be just as weird or weirder than Jodorowsky if he wants, you know? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> um, okay, what about... Um, what do you guys think of uh, Kyle MacLachlan as Paul Atreides? 80s heartthrob, man. <laughs> also in Twin Peaks. Also in Twin Peaks. Also in Blue Velvet. He's he's a regular with uh, with David Lynch actually, and so yeah. is Jack Nance, who was in the movie. Yeah, for a bit part, but Jack yeah. Nance was the lead in Eraserhead. For those of you that maybe not know his name. <clears throat> um. So, any thoughts on? Do you think that he portrayed Paul well? I mean, I I think he's actually a little bit old for Paul, <laughs> to be honest. But, well, according to the book, but in the in the rules of the movie, I didn't think so. And that's true. Yeah, absolutely. I think he did really well, actually. Um, watching how he played it, he played it like it was, you know, Caesar. He was really like uh, into it. All of it, I was watching it again like this morning, and the way that he would walk and the way that he would uh, kind of his posture, everything was very on point for me with a son of a duke kind of mentality and then um, kind of getting into all these new experiences and, and understanding why he has powers that he does and, and what he needs to do to accomplish uh, gaining or controlling those powers and then helping the, the Fremen kind of achieve freedom. So I think that his main job was to make me believe that he could be the leader of these, this uprising, and he did that. He sold me. I was 100% like, yeah, I could see people following this guy. So um, I thought yeah. he was really good. The thing is, if they would have made a second or third movie like following the books, I don't know if he would have worked out as well for that type of Paul. You know, I can't see McLaughlin pulling off the prophet in the wilderness thing very well. But uh, that's a I good point. Was, I thought he was perfect for this movie. Um, uh, let's see a few other names. Everett McGill, another typical Lynch. Uh, in every Lynch movie, he plays Stilgar. Um, oh, I gotta say, Jurgen uh, Pronch. Now, do you guys know uh, he's he plays Duke Leto? Okay. He's awesome. He's actually a German actor, speaks German as first language. Uh, very cool uh, um, English accent because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, he is a powerful actor. People may know him if you've seen Das Boot because he's the captain of the submarine in Das Boot, uh, one of the most famous German movies, Wolfgang Peterson's first movie, if you know who he is, director. Um, 
But he, he, I think he makes Dune so much better in everything he does. He's so believable as the Duke Leto. Yeah, I completely agree with Didn't that. They, I was reading somewhere, wasn't he, uh, they were going to overdub him? They, they were considering it in the beginning, and then uh, they decided, you know, he worked enough on his English that he, his performance, they just felt like they had to keep his dialogue, you know, and not overdub. Which but I'm was, so glad they did. Me too, yeah. Yeah, seriously. Hold it off well. Um, a few other, uh, like one person that gets a bad rap, but I don't, I don't dislike her. In fact, I really like some of the stuff she's done is Sean Young. I mean, I know that in real life she's supposedly certifiably crazy, but, um, <laughs> but as an actress, I mean, just look at Dune and Blade Runner, and I'm sorry, that's amazing work right there, you know? Definitely Blade Runner. Dune, she's a little bit stiff sometimes, but although the Fremen are kind of stiff too, in general. <laughs> so, I thought she was a worthy companion to Dune. That was her main goal, was to look like she could be his equal and that somebody he would actually be want to be with, and I thought she did a good job with that. And so. that's a, yeah, no. Considering it like that, I would agree, yeah. Uh, yeah, they didn't give her a lot of screen time in it, so... No, well, in the director's cut, she gets more lines, yeah. Yeah. which helps a lot, uh, especially during the Water of Life ceremony, that which is so critical, what she says to Paul, and yeah. she gets a lot better dialogue there. Um, Dean Stockwell, Dr. Yui. Yes. Of mm. Some Leap and Blue Velvet fame. Definitely. The Human Calculators, or whatever. Right? Wait. Oh, no, not Yui. Not Yui. Doctor Yui. Yeah, without giving too much away, um, an important character for a major plot. I was plot thinking Thufer. That's what I was no. thinking. Yeah. Yeah, as the Mentat. No, this yeah. is the Doctor uh, with Imperial conditioning to always be loyal, and uh, kind of the idea with it, he would be helping out the the family as they move to this new planet, Arrakis. Um, but certainly he plays a key role in, in everything that goes on. And I think he, he plays an awesome character. Somebody that, again, doesn't get a lot of screen time, but you kind of understand where he's coming from and, and definitely I, feel I, the emotion. I felt more emotion over his scenes than almost anything else in that movie. Like, I hated him, and then I felt bad for him, which is amazing in, in a matter of 20 minutes for an actor to pull yeah. that off, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've got to mention uh, Sian Phillips, who plays the Reverend Mother. She she's not in a lot of other films, but I think she's amazing in this movie. Uh, super creepy the way he, yeah. they had her dressed up, and she just hands it up big time. She's um, one of, she's one of those actresses where in that movie I feel like that's who she is. Like I yeah. I could not tell she was acting. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But, but, you know, it, it worked for Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, let's let's talk about um, the absolute uh, MVP of this movie. If you ask me, though, is Kenneth McMillan, Baron Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Off no, the charts. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, 
it's not an expected performance, and it uh, certainly you can't predict what he's going to do next, and it's absolutely creepy. Almost Everything. like Donald Trump. <laughs> Completely unpredictable. <laughs> and red-haired. This is wait. There's a connection here. Yeah. He's terrifying in that movie as the bad guy, and uh, I mean, there's so many iconic scenes with him when he has an assassination attempt and. He's freaking out, flying around, and I'm alive! I'm alive! You know, screaming at the top of his lungs and uh, getting his boils sucked out. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's not in the book that Lynch added. I think it's better than what the book came up yeah. with. It's awesome. And there's not a lot of actors, I think, that could... I mean, you couldn't put... I feel like you couldn't put Patrick Stewart in that position. You know what I mean? Like, there's no. not a lot of actors who are willing to get out of their comfort zone and put on a performance like that. For that kind of character. Yeah. Yeah. He owned it. <laughs> that floating fat man. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the symbolism of the story, and I guess we're going to have to get a little bit into spoiler territory to do this, but um, let's just talk about what this film means, like uh, some of the uh, themes and symbols and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe we, we start with uh, the religious connotations. I don't know. Anybody have any thoughts on that first? I mean, I'll throw one out to get the ball rolling here. Um, there's an interesting theory I read a, a long time ago. I think this actually came from Isaac Asimov, who loved Dune, by the way, um, the, the books. Um, he, he theorized that, that the whole story is actually um, a Jewish perspective on the Messiah. Have you guys ever heard yeah. of that before? Absolutely. Yeah. So the idea is that Paul, so that, you know, Jesus Christ came in the meridian of time, and he came peacefully. He didn't come as a warrior, and all the Jews were expecting him to come as a warrior and free them from their bondage to the Romans. Well, um, that's supposedly going to happen the second time, depending on which Christian stream you go down in belief. But the interesting about Dune is to say, well, if Jesus Christ wasn't the Messiah, then who is the Messiah, and it could be theorized that Paul Muad'Dib is the Messiah, and he comes back as a warrior and does free the people, the Fremen, which are kind of like Jews. There's so many similarities between the Messiah story and Dune, if you look at it that way. It's actually very similar to the story of Moses of Egypt, too, Yeah, uh, and freeing the people from the Egyptians. Uh, now, Frank Herbert wasn't a Jew. He was a Catholic who later converted to Buddhism. But uh, but it's interesting to note that because he had a lot of background in the in the Old Testament uh, growing up. So mm -hmm. right, definitely. Uh, what else? Definitely. I um, when you listen to the Fremen and how they essentially are worshiping the worms and uh, what ends up being the entire ecological stability of the, the planet, uh, there's some pretty big um, themes there. It's very interesting to, to think about the kind of the conundrum that there is. So a little bit of background. Uh, the planet is Arrakis. This is the one that they're on. It's a sand desert planet, 
Uh, but there are these sand worms that... By the way, uh, Arrakis nicknamed okay. Dune, which is where the name of the movie and the book comes from. Keep going. Right, yes. These worms are giant. They're, uh, you know, hundreds of meters in length. And they actually produce this spice called melange, which is not only a huge and, and expensive commodity, it's more precious than any other substance. It's, know, it's uh, a and that's totally what he was going for there, you know, as oil. Right, absolutely. It runs absolutely. all the ships in the universe. It's a drug, so it can be taken to enhance human abilities. There's lots of uses for this melange. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so the, the Fremen are the people who live on this planet. They're native there, and they actually have a very um, sacred relationship with these worms. Uh, you know, they almost say prayers when the worms come by and and are doing their thing, um, and and they also have stores of water, but um, they understand that uh, worms don't like water, or they, you know, they're, um, it actually damages the worms, and so they can't just try to, you know, change anything about the planet without disrupting what the worms do and, and their worms as uh, kind of... Um, sovereign beings. So there's an interesting kind of uh, complex dichotomy with with that whole element of how the worms are going to be su surviving, but at the same time, how do we kind of take control of the planet and not have the universe all be focused on, on this planet and trying to just suck it dry of, of the spice and things like that. Um, it becomes very interesting when you look at it in, from the ecological standpoint and kind of how we consider the, the world these days and, and kind of as a living being instead of just a, a scenery uh, for, for what's going on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's also interesting um, that it's telling the story of these, these people that have this religion that a Messiah will come and they're seeing the prophecies being fulfilled that, they, you know, that, they've, that they've known about forever, that a Messiah would come and free them and all this thing. And um, it, it's just an interesting perspective on religion that I feel like a lot of movies don't approach is showing prophecies being fulfilled and and well, um, religion being validated. Is that every hero's journey? It's you know in Jedi world, it's the prophecy of the Jedi who'll bring balance to the Force, and, right. and in Harry Potter, it's the prophecy of the boy. You know this and that, but. Yeah. Where, where they are different, and maybe not Star Wars, because there's actually a pretty heavy religious bent, at least in the original trilogy, Lucas kind of went away from that in the, the uh, episode one through three. But, um, but it's, there's a whole religious structure and politics and character interactions that are core to the whole story of Dune like you've never seen before, you know? Um, I, now... Just kind of going along with the symbolism, there's also lots of words used in Dune that are Middle Eastern words. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the uprising that the Fremen have is called the jihad, and and uh, Muad'Dib means like the the leader of the peoples or something in in uh, Arabic. You know, so there's all yep. these like important words that are used Middle Eastern connotations. You've got the spice, which is very much like oil. Of course, Middle Eastern references there as well. You've got the indigenous people trying to rise up. Uh, again, there's tons of things pointing to that. 
But uh, it's interesting that in the end, although it's all about this Messiah, you know, I take away from Dune what Frank Herbert's real point was, is watch out who you believe in because your leaders can't be trusted and the only person that can really be trusted is what you know personally is right, you know? Hmm. And even Paul, it doesn't really come through in the first book, but in the second book, Paul is a perfect example of that, right? In fact, he hates himself as a leader. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In uh, Dune Messiah. So, uh, which, funny, that's the second book's name, Dune Messiah. So. Yep. Yeah, it, it, he becomes kind of a, a fallen hero uh, afterwards once you get further down in the story. And uh, it almost becomes like a, you know, a loss of faith for, for the people that were believing in him as uh, that he was going to be the end-all, be-all of, of their problems. Uh, it's, it's not always the case. <laughs> so definitely it's, it is a warning from Frank Herbert. That's cool. Herbert was a Republican. Um, he was actually friends with Joseph McCartney up until McCartney started putting everybody on trial for communism. But uh, Herbert hated communism and loved uh, capitalism and democracy. And, um, but there was lots of things about like the Nixon whole Watergate scandal came out and definitely, I think, influenced a lot of uh, Herbert in his disillusionment with his own party's leadership, you know. So definitely, yeah, and and politics in Dune is a huge thing. I mean, there's, I I actually was reading a quote from one of the guys that worked on the recent uh, year 2000 or something or other um, version of Dune for the Sci-Fi Channel, and he had an interesting perspective, which was uh, the political landscape of Dune is actually more. It's closer to what we have right now than what was in the 60s when, when yeah. Dune was written. Because we have a lot of, you know, factions that are in control of things and, and uh, kind of, you know, uh, secret... Um, Families? Between them, yeah. Houses, they're called in the books, and corporations are sort of at the head of all politics. Which, if you look at, I mean, with the Bushes and the Clintons, and, and we've got these power centers... And, they're, and they've got all their little fiefdoms, and then we've got all these corporations buying everybody. Um, you know, you mentioned Trump. It's one of the reasons that some of his supporters like him so much is because he's not really bought off. <laughs> he's the only one. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. So um, and that, you mentioned yeah. the miniseries. Brad, we should just talk about this real quick. Because uh, the miniseries was, like, I think still, like, in the top five highest broadcast numbers for a miniseries in history of television. It was super popular, you know. It was the biggest thing the Sci-Fi Channel ever did at the time. Um, (laughs) And and, since. (laughs) Yeah, and, but to me, that movie, I I mean, I can watch uh, David Lynch's Dune, I've probably seen 20, 30 times, and I'd still watch it right now and not be bored at all. But the miniseries, um, I watched it last year again, and I was just dying. I was like, ugh. It was more accurate to the book in some ways, but the budget, to me, just really holds it back. Um, the best thing about it, honestly, is the score, the musical score. Yeah, no, beautiful. Music is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think about the miniseries? <clears throat> oh, I like that it is a, uh, 
I mean, I, I would almost like to see some of the things in the Dune from 1984 being updated in terms of special effects and, and scenery and stuff like that. Um, I, I kind of hold a special place in my heart for it, but I need to watch it again because it's been years. And I, I remember Children of Dune was better than Dune. Way better. Way better. Yeah. yeah they had a bigger budget and um, better acting. Uh, yeah. I don't know. The script really let the actors down a lot in the first one. Definitely. Definitely. I remember the blue eyes being a little bit better than the... <laughs> the yeah. They, they've... Kind of, they figured out that special effect a little bit better than, than the 1984 Dune. Definitely. Um. So I guess, uh, you know, kind of wrapping it up here, um, what are some final takeaways? What would you tell the audience about Dune, or why do you love it, or, you know, should they watch it, and why, or whatever you guys want to say there? Okay. Well, right. yeah, so... I feel like Dune is a, a piece of pure imagination, and it comes from great source material uh, and, that it's based off of, and the, the production is beautiful. And I just feel like if you appreciate it all, seeing something you've never seen before, uh, then I would watch Dune. Uh, and never seen before, and maybe never will be made again. Exactly. That is a time when studios didn't have as much control over directors. You know? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely kind of in its own category. And uh, it's funny to think that just a few years earlier, David Lynch was approached about doing Return of the Jedi, and he turned it down. It's interesting to think, well... You know, if if Dune was like this, what would Return of the Jedi have been like? He turned down Return of the Jedi to do Dune, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting. And actually, uh, if you consider kind of the other people that were up for doing Dune, uh, or at least were approached about it, the first, the very first person that I could see that was um, uh, approached about doing it was David Lean, and he directed. Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Great Expectations, Bridge over on the River Kwai. I mean, guy is just a, a powerhouse. What could the movie have been like? those Academy Award-winning films. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just out of this world. So um, it, it's interesting that the, the mantle fell on David Lynch and that we actually got that movie created. Um, I think that uh, certainly... <laughs> um, I think that's worth a viewing. So I would definitely recommend it, unless you may be very um, squeamish, because <laughs> there are some things that you no, might have to turn away. No, no, it's not gory. Don't don't. No, it. not gory, but the boils and and heart plugs and Harkonnen stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think it's too bad. I mean, I isn't it PG? I don't even think it's PG thirteen. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. But uh, I think those are both great points. I guess I would say that uh, this is the movie that made Lynch leave mainstream Hollywood and start doing um, even more bizarre stuff, independent, low-budget stuff, you know? And so if you want to see 
what could have been, like if this had worked out, we might have had five or ten more uh, high-budget Lynch movies, which would have just been so awesome, I think, you know. He would have changed the face of cinema in some ways. He did anyways, but um, of mainstream cinema. And uh, so this is really his last hurrah. If you ever want to see a big-budget Lynch movie, this is it, because he'll never do another one. And he's working on the new season of Twin Peaks right now, and that's actually surprising they even got him to come back, but he made so many crazy stipulations for it. You know, <laughs> I think they're regretting having him on now. <laughs> of course. And that, yeah, that, that's the... Uh, I mean, it's really... It's, this movie was such a box office failure um, compared to the budget that they had, which was, I mean... It was forty million, which at the time was heavy. Um, yeah, it's like equivalent so, of doing like a hundred and fifty million film today. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 quite an adventure, and it's definitely something that we probably won't ever see from from David Lynch. And you have the music of Toto, which is always good to hear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they did the soundtrack. Um, so yeah, so it's definitely worth picking up. Uh, it, do you know if it's streaming on Netflix right now? I haven't even checked. I don't think it Good is. Question. Yeah. I don't think it is either, but... Uh, it's a, it's a movie worth seeing more than once, and don't believe all the haters. Uh, it's actually a classic, an absolute classic. Uh, highly, highly quotable. Maybe one of the most quoted movies in our family growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that's true, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> don't you think? I mean, yeah. <laughs> like we talk it's about that movie all the time. It's crazy. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Um, happy trails. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.